want to continue what we've been doing now for a number of weeks, which is talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. And I realized I didn't read a lot from the sutta on this, the Sakyatana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness. I'm going to read a little bit from it tonight. And um, I read this part, but I'll read it again. So he's talking, the Buddha is talking to his followers, and at the time when this sutta was developed, it was before there were any female followers, because nuns hadn't yet been accepted in the order. They were later accepted, but at the time he was speaking to men. And, and the word he's using is bhikkhus, which really probably the best translation for us is practitioners. So he says bhikkhus, or practitioners. There, there is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, or nirvana in later translations, nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, should I read that once more? That's worth it. Bhikkhus, practitioners. This is the direct path for the purification of beings. So when he's talking to Bhikkhus, he's really talking to us, to everybody who wants to practice. So there is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief. I mean, already, it's a pretty good offer. <laughs> so the surmounting of sorrow lamentation for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, practitioners. A practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. And we've been doing that for the last four weeks or five weeks we've been talking about mindfulness of the body. Contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So here's the first instructions about how to practice. So once contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. One abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. One abides that's the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedna. So, and then he continues. One one abides contemplating um, mind as mind, ardent fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And one abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So these are the first, this is just the opening couple of paragraphs of the Buddha saying, I have, I'm offering something here that leads to freedom. And it's through this practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. 
mindfulness. Mindful of the body as the body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, dharmas, or sometimes translated as mind objects, as mind objects, or dharmas as dharmas. And as part of that, one at least temporarily, doesn't mean you permanently do this, but when you're meditating, you learn how to put aside, or put away as it's translated here, put aside covetousness and grief for the world. A simple translation for this is covetousness is grasping and, and grief is an aversion. One puts aside one's grasping or aversion to the things or the reality of the world and starts to pay attention to the immediacy of one's experience here and now. Because that's where the, the uh, positive part, the surmounting of sorrow lamentation, disappearance of pain and grief, the attainment of true way, realization of nirvana, that happens right where you're sitting. That happens by paying attention to your direct, immediate experience. And so for the moment, you put away though, everything you want about the world, how you want it to be, or what you want to get, or what you want to attain. You put away everything you don't like about the world, everything that's crummy or rotten about the world. Just put that aside. Doesn't mean you have to forget it or not think that ever again. Just means for, for the time you're meditating, start to pay attention to what's actually here, what's actually happening in your direct experience. Not in your ideas, not in your beliefs, not in your desires, not in your aversions, not in your likes and dislikes. Okay, so that's just a little bit. And then he goes into the contemplation of the body, which in this translation starts with mindfulness of breathing and all kinds of other body awareness practices. And these are all the first foundations which include the nine charnel ground contemplations, Maranasati, mindfulness of death. Then, he goes to the second foundation. And here I'll read you a little of the second foundation. And how practitioners, does a practitioner about contemplating feelings as feelings? So, this first thing I need to say before I go any further, the way feelings is used in Buddhism is not the way we generally use it. It's not about emotion. Emotions is in the third foundation. We'll get to that. But here, you'll hear, he says, how does one abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when a feeling, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a practitioner understands, I have a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, one understands I have a painful feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, one understands I have a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And then he goes on from there. He expands the instructions, which I'll come back to in a few minutes, because there's more I want to say based on what the Buddha says. But everybody get the basic idea? What the Buddha is pointing at, what I was trying to point at a little in the instructions today, is that he's pointing at a more fundamental 
uh, level of human experience that every experience that we have, bodily experience, all kinds of sensations, you know, are, are either pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which I'm going to call from now on neutral. Right? If you're sitting, some of you people are sitting on the floor. If you're sitting on the floor and you got your knees crossed, sometimes you notice an unpleasant experience in the knee. You know, it's painful. It gets tight. The legs cramp. Or sometimes you're sitting like that and the whole body relaxes in this way you didn't know it was possible. And it is totally pleasant. It's, it's, you know, can get ecstatically pleasant. That's how pleasant it can get. Or you're not noticing the body. It's neither pleasant nor painful. It's in a neutral phase. And this can be true actually whether you're on the cushion, on a bench, on a chair, standing up, lying down, all of those can happen. You can have a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral physical experience. That makes sense to anybody? Okay. Anybody ever notice emotional experiences? Right? You meet somebody and you really like them. And they really like you. All of a sudden you're having this very pleasant emotional experience that sometimes we call a crush or falling in love. Oh, I just I like that person so much and they like me and I can't, you know, and it's, we feel great. Right? Anybody ever notice that? Maybe <laughs> once, you know. Or you meet somebody you really like and they don't, they're not interested in you at all. <laughs> right? They don't even want to talk to you. They think you're not cool. <laughs> And so you have a different kind of emotional experience that, oh, I really like that person, they don't even want to talk to me. All of a sudden you have an unpleasant emotional experience. Doesn't feel good. Or, or something happens, you really like somebody, and then they act in a certain way, and you don't like them. You really don't like them. They're obnoxious. Oh, they're very gross. You didn't expect that. You know, they're, they're rude or something, whatever it is. And all of a sudden you're having an unpleasant emotional experience, dislike. Or, you know, like with most people, you either like them or not like them. You kind of don't even notice them emotionally. You have a neutral experience. And this can happen with anything. You know, people or food or things can be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Emotions that happen can be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And the mind, our minds, <laughs> can be very uh, much the same. The kind of thoughts we have, the kind of beliefs we have, the kind of ideas we have, the kind of confusions of mind that we have, um, can be pleasant like really, we can have really pleasant thoughts. Anybody ever notice that? Like sometimes people love sitting because their mind lights up a little bit. 
and it gets really alive and really interesting, they'll tell me there's some retreat. Oh yeah, my mind is fantastic. I was thinking about this and that. They're having a pleasant mind experience. Because most people on retreat are having an unpleasant mind. <laughs> it's maybe more familiar, which is just thinking about how what bad meditator we are, and oh, I'll never learn how to do this, and I'm horrible, and I should have known that, or whatever. We have these ideas, and then we believe those ideas, and it's unpleasant. Or we have a lot of thoughts that have nothing to do with anything, and we don't pay much attention to them, and they're kind of neutral. Except when we really don't get concentrated and then they're more unpleasant. So I'm just trying to point out the, the field of what we're starting to pay attention to. And the reason why the Buddha emphasized this area of human experience is because the quality of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, has further impact. It's not just that, oh, we, you know, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. That's its own impact. But it conditions other states of consciousness. If it's pleasant, generally, and this, and now, now, first of all, let me say one more thing. I'm giving, I gave all examples, mostly internal examples, a little bit relational. But these are both internal and external experiences that are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Like you can come to this group every week, and, and in a month, one week can be really pleasant, you get a great talk, you have good people, it's all working well, you have some great food or good tea, it's great, pleasant experience. The next week you come, I give a rotten talk, boring talk. You don't care about that. Why is he talking about that? How come he keeps going on and on? And so it's unpleasant, and there's no tea, and, and the cookies are horrible. Or you come, and it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's kind of neutral. So, you know, it's just neutral. So the, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, internal, which we really want to pay attention to, or external, we also want to pay attention to, has a secondary component, which is it conditions a reaction that is generally unconscious in most people. Or if not unconscious, it's conscious and it's believed to be the way reality is. So if you have a pleasant experience, it generates, generally, will generate grasping, wanting. I want more of that. I want, oh, you have a pleasant thought? You have a fantasy about somebody? It's really pleasant? I want more of that. Or you have a nice interaction with someone? You think you're going to fall in love? Oh, I want more of that. Or you have some good food? I want some more of those, you know, whatever it is, cookies or ribs or cake or you know, whatever it might be, that pleasantness has an impact on human consciousness. Human consciousness wants more of it. Maybe I should say animal consciousness, because it's true for other animals. But we're more aware of the pleasantness that we want more of, of the people, of the things, of the experience, whatever it might be. And the same, so, 
So pleasure uh, generates greed or grasping or wanting. Unpleasant generates aversion, dislike, disdain, wanting to get away from, wanting to get rid of, which is also an experience that anybody else ever have this beside me? You ever notice this? The aversive experience? You meet somebody and then not so slick or they're not so whatever, whatever it is you like. They're not your type. You're aversive to them. You can be judgmental of them. It's easy to be harsh with them. Or if you have some food and it doesn't taste like your kind of food, right? It comes from another culture that you're not familiar with. And now that's crappy. Why do I eat this crappy food? Those people who, of course, those people, whoever those people might be, love that food. But you don't know it, so you think, oh, they're dumb or something's wrong. You have an aversive reaction to the unpleasantness. And internally, too, when we have certain uh, feelings that we think are unpleasant, like maybe we, we, we're scared. And maybe we're not supposed to be scared because we're grown up and we shouldn't ever feel scared or anything like that. And so we're really harsh or judgmental with ourselves because we're scared or angry or sad or whatever it might be. So, so it brings a reaction, an unpleasant experience, an aversive reaction. And then the neutral is something we tend to be unconscious of or the, the term that's used in the Dharma is forgetful of. We don't stay awake to the neutral experience. We're much more addicted to pleasant or unpleasant. That's much more compelling for us in general. And, and please remember, I'm giving generalizations. I'm not saying everybody does this every time or anything like this. But see for yourself Start to pay attention. Where do you fit into these qualities, these concepts, these habits of consciousness that are pretty common to most human beings? Because the reason the Buddha um, encouraged the second foundation of mindfulness is to begin to decondition the conditioning that we live under is to liberate or free us from the habit, from the pattern, from the trance that we are all uh, live, live part of our life of. The trance of grasping for the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant or being unconscious to the neutral. And so that makes basic sense. And you can, somebody can tell me if I'm not making basic sense, it won't be that unpleasant. <laughs> People tell me generally. So this is, this is the, this is Vedna. What I'm describing to you, what I'm explaining to you is Vedna. It's, it's a better word, I think, than the translation, the contemplation of feelings. Because we use feelings to mean emotions, generally. But really what, what the Buddha's talking about is, uh, and uh, um, an affective component of every experience. In other words, any, every experience you have 
has the component of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we're, we're, we don't pay attention to it except to act on it. If it's pleasant, we want it, we're going to get more, we'll do what we need, we'll buy it, we'll work on it, etc. If it's unpleasant, we'll move, we'll leave, we'll get rid of, we'll cut off, we'll deny, we'll push away. And if it's neutral, well, who cares? Um, whatever, who cares about those moments of consciousness? <laughs> and that tends to be how we've been trained. How we've been trained. It's part of the training of human beings in general. So as I said, I talked to you a little, I said a little about what the Buddha said about the um, painful feeling uh, uh, pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor unpleasant. Then he continues, and he says, when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, a worldly pleasant feeling, one understands that I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly painful feeling, one understands I feel a worldly painful feeling. When feeling an unworldly painful feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly painful feeling. When feeling a worldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling, one understands I feel a worldly neither painful neutral feeling. And when feeling an unworldly neutral feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly uh, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. So that, that's the basic instruction. And I'll talk a little more in a minute about worldly or unworldly, which mostly will mean worldly has to do with sense pleasure. Unworldly has to do with contemplative or renunciate or um, uh, spiritual pleasure or uh, uh, pain. Okay? So worldly it has to do with normal, and unworldly has to do with spiritual. Those are simple definitions that we can use. Okay, I'll, I'll do a little more of that in a bit. So, so the Buddha says, recognize worldly, pleasant, unpleasant, or pleasant, painful, or neutral experience. So think about. <laughs> I could say, like, because it's any of the sense norms. And, and this is one of the beauties of mindfulness, is it helps awaken us to sensual reality, the reality of the six sense doors in Buddhism. So, in other words, you could look here right now, and you could see, is it a pleasant sight, an unpleasant sight, or a neutral sight? Right? Because it has those clubs. For some people, they're going to think it's really a pleasant sight. And I appreciate that. <laughs> some people are going to be a little more objective and see it's an unpleasant And some people, it's, it's no big deal. It's just Eugene sitting up there, he's talking. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Or here's a good example. Great. Couple people. Thank you. How many 
many people find it neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Okay, few. Great. Thank you. And if I go like this. You can totally enjoy the world. 
and saying it. But if you believe that's when your ultimate happiness will come, you'll suffer. And if you start to see that suffering, or really that reality is the door to freedom, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, then you start to understand the Buddhist perspective on happiness, on where happiness comes from. So the worldly and unworldly vena uh, can start to bring a deeper understanding of pleasure and happiness because it highlights the difference between um, the usual pleasures and, uh, or, and what we could call beneficial pleasure or what we could call beneficial pleasure and unbeneficial pleasure or great happiness and ordinary happiness, conventional happiness. And uh, because so much of our, our pleasure turns into addiction for us or some kind of grasping, we have to have more. And the, you know, the gross examples everybody knows, like uh, drugs, like you do drugs and it feels good. You do some drug, you do whatever it is, marijuana or cocaine or heroin. The first impact, oh, this is pleasant. This is good. And I've done all of those. So I, I have some real life experience with all of them. And, you know, it's very interesting. You try this drug and you think, oh, what are people, oh, this is really cool. You do a little cocaine, wow, all of a sudden you feel bright and fun and or if you do, especially, I do only do a little bit, a little bit of heroin, everything relaxes. Total relaxation. Totally cool. And I did a lot of marijuana, so I enjoyed that quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it brought a certain pleasure. But what happens is, the pleasure begets wanting more of that pleasure. It has an addictive component to it often. And whether it's with drugs or for many people with alcohol or often with tobacco, which I did for many years with television. I love smoking cigarettes until I found out what it does to you, but it was tasted great and it was cool and all that stuff. And then there's, you know, money. People get addicted to money or to power or to work. Because it feels good, and then we want more of it. We want more of the power. We want to be seen a certain way. And so there are these qualities we want to start to pay attention to, because we want to see what is our motivation for how we're spending our life. What is our motivation? Because pleasure can turn to a kind of addiction. And things... Even if it's good, chocolate, chocolate. Let's go with chocolate. Most people like chocolate. You have chocolate, it's really good. And then you want some more chocolate. I want a little more. A little bit more. A little chocolate, chocolate. And then, you know, you break out maybe. Or you gain some weight. But it's okay, it's chocolate, whatever. But, but at a certain point, all the chocolate doesn't feel so good. It changes through that addictive relationship to it. And personally for me, and I'm somebody, I, this is 
totally true. I really, really like chocolate. I never eat chocolate. Why? Because, and this is, I shouldn't even tell you this, but I will. <laughs> this is because, for one reason or another, but partly it might be after doing a lot of meditation practice, I'm very sensitive to caffeine, and chocolate has some caffeine, or some, some, something that's like caffeine. So I never drink caffeine unless I'm doing a 50 or 100 mile bike ride. And so I don't drink caffeine. That's when I eat chocolate. <laughs> so I can. But if I had chocolate right now, a little piece of chocolate, I'd be up half the night. Really, because I feel what happens to it. So I can't do chocolate. But really what I'm saying is anything, anything that's pleasant has its pluses and minuses. And so we want to be aware of them so we can use what's pleasant skillfully, enjoy it, but not become at the mercy of that domain, of that chocolate or whatever it might be, that work or that pleasure or that person or whatever it might be. So here again from the Buddha, he says, forms, forms, sounds, tastes, odors, tactile sensations, and all mental objects, this is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. Should I say that again? Mm -hmm. I can't hear. Yes or no? Yeah. Okay. Forms, sounds, taste, odor, tactile sensations, all mental objects, this is the terrible bait of the world with, with which the world is infatuated. So here he's starting to point to something else, which is our infatuation with the pleasurable and our aversion to the unpleasant keeps us from being free. Okay? Okay. Let's stop there. Continue now but with part two. So let me say a little bit more about unworldly pleasure because this is an important piece. Generally, I wouldn't talk about this except on retreat, but let's see how it goes. This different level of pleasure with, is considered not to add danger, but becomes part of the basis for awakening. Now, many of you who've been here have heard me talk about the Buddha's... The Buddha was, um, did a lot of practices to try to wake up. And he was an ascetic for many years, a serious practitioner, very ascetic. He, he said, you know, any pain that any ascetic has ever felt, he felt, he experienced, he sat with. Because he thought that was one of the doorways to freedom. And that's what he was told by some of his first teachers. And so he was going to follow what they said. And at some point, he has this realization that this asceticism and treating the, the body harshly is not, it's not right. It doesn't work. It's not appropriate. And so he takes some food, which he hadn't been eating, you know, I don't know, for a month or something, and he has a vision. And his vision is from when he's a childhood. I, I talked about this vision and read about it many times. The vision is he has a re he remembers when he was a child in his father's uh, apple tree orchard, and his father was 
doing something in the orchard. He was sitting in the tree, and it was so pleasant, and he was feeling so um, uh, uh, satisfied just to be sitting in the tree, and the pleasure of his father working, and him being there, and the, the, the atmosphere of the orchard, that he went into a state of samadhi. And he realized, when he realizes this, he realizes, oh, might that be the way to freedom? That kind of pleasantness, that kind of pleasure, might that be the way to freedom? And he thinks about it, he continues, he says, why am I afraid of this kind of pleasure? This is not a pleasure based on, you know, grasping the desire or wanting that I have to have or pushing away something or dividing things. That was a natural pleasure, the pleasure of consciousness in a relaxed state. And he, and so he, he says, I don't need to be afraid of this pleasure. And he starts to meditate in that way, and that leads to his night under the Bodhi tree and his awakening. Okay? So, what's pointed to here is a certain kind of uh, happiness that's central to the path that the path leads to happiness. And the Buddha even has a quote, he says, I am one who lives in happiness. Lives in happiness. But the happiness is not about getting pleasure from the outside or from somewhere or doing it all right. It's about being oneself, about relaxing into the nature of who and what we are, which one of the terms we could use is the Buddha nature of who and what we are or the essence of who and what we are, or the divinity of who and what we are, or the sacredness, whatever word works for you, or, you know, of what's here, of what is the spark, origin of human life. And so, and so he started to look, does desire, aversion, delusion um, create suffering or freedom? And what happens if the desire or the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality arises in a contemplative way? And so he encouraged people to start to be mindful of their vedna of experience, of the feeling tone of experience, whether it's a worldly experience or a contemplative experience. And what he saw was that the contemplative or spiritual experiences did not condition reactions, that they were a different level of Vedna. And here's another quote from the Buddha. He says, if defiling states such as greed, hatred, and delusion disappear, if states of mind like greed, hatred, and delusion disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develop along with tranquility, mindfulness, and clear awareness. So if we're not grasping for what's pleasant, if we're not pushing away what's unpleasant, if we're not unconscious about the neutral experience, in other words, if we're here with the pleasantness experience or unpleasantness and neutrality, and it's not conditioning our reaction of our psyche anymore, what he's saying is happiness and delight develop along with tranquility, mindfulness, and clear awareness. And that is a happy state. 
And so this is what the Buddha was talking about, pointing to as the, some of the qualities of awakening or awakeness. And then, and even, and you can start, and it doesn't mean you don't have any experience of this. Everybody here has some experience of this. And here I'm going to give some examples and, and see if you recognize yourself. I'll give some spiritual examples. Um, uh, here's a beautiful example. Generosity. If you've ever been generous, if you ever felt moved to give, like if you felt, if you've gone on a meditation retreat and you felt moved to give something, offer something, or if there's somebody on the street and you're touched by the fact that they're suffering and you want to give them a dollar or 50 cents or five dollars or ten dollars, or you're moved by something's happened, there's been an earthquake or there's been a volcano or there's been a loss in a country or a culture, not even one that you know or is part of, but you're touched by it, you move and you give. It, it, it happens automatically. You're not doing it to feel good. You're doing it because you're touched. And there's a, gen a natural generosity in it. You will start to see the kind of Vedna that I'm pointing at, the, the unworldly Vedna, we would call it, of generosity, of, of, of caring and expressing that. Or the Brahma-Viharas, the divine abodes in Buddhism. Loving-kindness is, is an expression of this kind of uh, pleasure, of love, or of compassion, or of joy, or of equanimity. And, there, and you can feel, you see the pleasantness of them, but you're not doing it to feel pleasure. You're doing it because it's, it, it actually it's just happening. You're not doing it at all. It's doing itself as part of the freedom of consciousness. And it's, compassion's a great place to see it. When you, when you feel compassionate, just spontaneously, automatically, because of difficulty, and the goodness of that. Or in, and I'm giving mostly Buddhist examples, the precepts also bring a kind of pleasure to them. Um, and the precepts for those of you who don't know are not killing, not stealing, um, uh, not acting out sexually, not lying, not acting out to intoxicate. And there's a, there's a way one can do those rigidly, but there's also a way one those they start to rise naturally. And they're, ple they're pleasure, it's a pleasurable to not steal, right? It's like not even an idea. Right? It's not even a thought. But if you've ever had the idea, and then the idea falls away, you see the pleasure of not stealing. Or here's another dharma uh, uh, sitting practice can be really pleasant. You're not doing it for the pleasure, but you go and you sit, and it's so simple. You just have a simple sitting, and it's quiet, and it's totally pleasant. Or you go on a retreat, you live in the simplicity of a retreat where all you're doing is sitting and walking meditation and eating meditation. You're not talking, you're not being social. And the simplicity itself is incredibly pleasurable, beautiful. Or um, the concentration that can come, and I've had a fair amount of this, 
can be really pleasant. When you get really concentrated in the meditation, generally won't happen so much in daily life, but on a retreat can really happen. Uh, it's fantastic, actually. It's like so pleasurable to be at one with your experience. Like not, there's not two things. There's not the experience and then me having the experience. There's just the experience and the knowing of the experience are unified. Are, this is what samadhi is. This is what, what we call concentration. Better word is samadhi. It's the unification of experience. Incredibly pleasant. And as it deepens, it gets more and more pleasurable. States of jhana, states of absorption that are very, very pleasant. Or stages of insight as you start to see reality, perceive reality, not as good or bad, but as the, you're starting to perceive reality in its changing and selfless flow of reality. Right? It's just appearing and disappearing reality, moment by moment reality. And it starts to have a certain kind of impact on the psyche, which is the beginning of freedom and nirvana. And that's very pleasant. The, the joy or pleasure or the happiness of seeing reality as it is is often how it's talked about in Buddhism. And of course, then there's also unworldly, unpleasant or neutral feelings, and they can happen. And they're also good. They're not bad. Like you can have, you can start to really see, oh, everything is impermanent. Like everything is impermanent. Everybody you meet, every experience you have, every thought, every feeling, it's all impermanent. And it can be a little disturbing at first because it's, it's not what we think reality is. And we're starting to see reality a little closer than we used to. And But then it's like, it's freeing. It starts to free us up in a way we can't imagine until we have the experience. Anyhow, I'm just trying to get a little bit examples. What will what, happen is there'll be a certain kind of disenchantment or disillusionment about reality. And so the disenchantment and disillusionment sometimes that's a little uncomfortable at first. But if you really know what those words mean, to be disenchanted, it means we're not entranced by things that are entrancable, that are reality. There's something more real to them than trance. Or being eluded. You know, if we're living in illusion, we're living in illusion, in a fakeness or a falseness. And so to be disillusioned is to begin to live in reality. And the Buddha pointed at reality as what is free. So to be mindful of our vedna, whether it's worldly vedna or, or unworldly vedna, spiritual vedna. I'm going to continue. We'll do more next week. We'll continue. Here's what I'd like to ask of you, if you're interested in this. 
really includes Vedna as part of your practice this week. It doesn't mean the whole time that's all you're aware of. But while you sit, pay attention periodically. Oh, is, is, is the breath pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is the body pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Are these strong feelings I'm having pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? It's always thinking, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Don't think about it much. Just ask the question quickly, and you'll give an answer quickly. And the same as you go through your day from time to time. Notice what's happening. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And are you having a reaction to the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, or the neutralness of your experience? Because it starts to um, include the mindful or spacious capacity of mind in this area that we tend to be locked into, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then we'll, and next week we'll have a bigger discussion about it. I don't just want to talk, but there was a lot to say tonight. So we'll continue this discussion next week at, about Vedna. And if you're looking, if you want more information, of course, go on the web, look, look up the second foundation of mindfulness. And I'm sure you can find a million good things. So let's sit for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.